experience is wheelchair accessible and co-sponsored by KPFA. Tickets are $15 and $10. Available at MeccaForPeace.org, Brown Paper Tickets, Area Bookstores, or call 510-548-0542. As you're listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, also 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. Please stay tuned for Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school, get your money. Every Friday, happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture. The shadows This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is April 13th, 2013. The horror in Boston is matched, of course, by the horrors in the Middle East, although many Americans seem to feel, uh, you know, they seem to feel when these uh, terrorist events strike us here at home, they seem to feel that more deeply. Uh, I understand why that is so. Uh, I keep thinking, asking myself what the parents can tell their children. You know, when it happens over and over again, you can't exactly tell the children that they're safe or that it will never happen again. (laughs) Indeed, yes, the great satirist Mort Saul used to say, the future lies ahead. Right, that's it, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. All our yesterdays have lighted fools, the way to dusty death. What fools and madmen these mortals be. I figure there's enough pain and suffering in our natural lives, certainly enough to go around. These bombers can't compete with the uh, other horses of the apocalypse, you know, disease. All four horsemen of the apocalypse, riding hard these days, war, famine, disease, and death. Always at hand, in the midst of life, we are in death. Why, 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 of course. We know why. We know why, yes. It's strange that their first concern is for the eight-year-old boy... Mm, he had come to see his father run the Boston Marathon. Uh, where is the victory in his death? Uh, our so-called news media is busy, busy, looking for the perpetrators, demanding justice, justice, uh, spending 
our resources on uh, more and more homeland security, more cops, you know, more surveillance uh, as if it were possible to turn the tide of history. Oh, I suppose uh, if they put the money on early childhood education, it might help. But I was watching an old movie in the middle of the night trying to not listen to the uh, radio, the media, and I came across an old picture with Rex Harrison, Anna and the King of Siam. And old Rex Harrison is dying, and uh, he keeps quoting, I think, Lincoln. Yes. True progress lies in the human heart, something like that. I remember thinking that that was awfully profound when I was 14 years old, back in 1940-something. Yes, right after the United States government dropped two atomic bombs on the Japanese people. You remember? Two. They dropped two atom bombs. Of course, it's... uh, You know, it's old hat to say that our species is homicidal, suicidal. The question is always, how is it possible for the compassionate people to rule? (laughs) It's a big contradiction there somehow. Oh, you know, lefties don't want to rule. And when the compassionate folks get power like Jimmy Carter, the hard-hearted ones gear up and push them out. Jimmy Carter was on the telly last night uh, with John Stewart. Yes, he he was showing John Stewart how he had he Jimmy Carter and his foundation had helped wipe out the guinea worm. They had the guinea worm in a jar. Uh, not the sort of thing you forget. Anyway, uh, you know how it is with the uh, with the dark forces, the right wing. Uh, I remember. The death of JFK in my youth. I wasn't sure, you know, what it meant at the time, but I kind of figured that political power is going to be weighted to the right forever and ever. That is, it's the dark forces that love power, that demand power. You know, uh, the people of the light, you know, uh, We're the blue people, yes. Frivolous, frivolous. Uh, Some say that progressives just don't have the killer gene. I think that's nonsense. Uh, For me, all these thoughts led me once upon a time to the feminist movement, to the notion that uh, women, females... um, might not kill all the children, anyway, not before lunch. And then I heard Madeleine Albright say that, you know, the death of the children in the Middle East, you remember that it was worth the sacrifice, that sort of thing. Later, Madeleine Albright said it was the dumbest thing she ever said. Uh, tomorrow, Wednesday, it's the funeral of Margaret Thatcher, the one-time Prime Minister of Great Britain from 79 to, let's see, 11 years, I guess, to 1980. She and uh, uh, 
Ronnie, what was it? I'm trying to think of the dates. Uh, I I was kind of startled because they're calling her the Wicked Witch of the West even after she has departed. Uh, I was thinking, you know, there's a lot of guys giving it the the old the old. Uh, is it the John Stewarts and the Bill Mars giving it the the old goose saying, uh, what's the use of having a woman at the top if she's still a dick? That sort of nonsense. Uh, of course, it, the fact is, it's a man's world. Uh, and in such a world, uh, women can only imitate uh, the other guys in the power structure. You remember Hillary Clinton, she voted for the war in Iraq. Even Barack Obama didn't do that. Historically, very few women who come to power uh, can be, what is it called, compassionate. It doesn't go with the job description. Uh, uh, they can certainly be as heavy-handed as any male. They've proved that. Golda Meir comes to my mind. Certainly one of the greatest men in history. Uh, Maggie Thatcher certainly was an iron lady. You had to admire her style at times. Mm. If only she hadn't had the perspective that she shared with Ronnie Reagan. What a pair. Today I had planned to talk about women's liberation because uh, I found an article in the New Yorker and I wanted to talk about how some of us thought that uh, the freedom of women, women's liberation, might make a huge uh, shift, you know, a lurch to the left. But, of course, uh, the truth is, I'm just an anarchist. I don't believe in rulers in the first place, so uh, I'm no use in the real world. <laughs> One of those fools who thinks that we can, you know, elect a good guy for president and then go work on our creative uh, nonsense. I guess, once upon a time, I thought of myself as a socialist feminist. That seemed to me to be respectable. Uh, now, one of my heroes is profiled in this current New Yorker for April 15th. Uh, she's part of the generation of martyrs. Uh, the article is called Death of a Revolutionary. It's about Shulamith Firestone. And uh, I, I think probably most young people have forgotten about her. Uh, isn't that strange? Of course, she was an extremist. Um, I think of, yes, I think of the martyrs, the women's martyrs, you know, and I, I realize that like the martyrs in the civil rights movement, Many of them died. Andrea Dworkin is only recently lost to us. Uh, these are the women who cracked open the old order. Uh, back in the day, 1920, we had the suffrage movement. That was my mother's generation. Let's see, this article tells us that feminist energy was then co-opted by jazz age consumerism then buried in decades of economic depression and war until the dissatisfactions of post-World War II women 
famously described by Betty Friedan in The Feminine Mystique in 1963, gave rise to what they called a second wave of feminism. Uh, alongside uh, that movement, there was a kind of moderate uh, women's movement, you know, the National Organization for Women and Ms. Magazine, Gloria Steinem. Uh, and that was, in those days, you know, it was difficult to put lesbians uh, on the list. You know, the women's movement left them out until, uh, what is it, at least 20 years later. Uh, let's see. Let me read you the first paragraph. Uh, well, no, first I wanted to... Uh, remind you that the women at that time, the earliest women, the suffragists, they got the idea from the abolitionist movement, whereas the women in second wave feminism got their ideas from the civil rights movement. Uh, but each one noticed that once the uh, rights, uh, the abolitionists, once they got the vote for black Americans, then things just blew away. Uh, same with... Uh, the civil rights movement, once it was over, not that they won, but once it uh, faded, uh, we noticed that the women's movement was uh, belittled. Propaganda always works, you know. Let's see. Let me, let me read you a little snippet. <laughs> When Shulamuth Firestone's body was found late last August in her studio apartment on the fifth floor of a tenement walk-up on East 10th Street, she had been dead for some days. She was 67. She had battled schizophrenia for decades, surviving on public assistance. There was no food in the apartment. One theory is that Firestone starved. No autopsy uh, was conducted by preference of her Orthodox Jewish family. Now, such a solitary demise would have been unimaginable to anyone who knew her in the late 1960s, when Shulamuth Firestone was at the epicenter of the radical feminist movement, surrounded by some of the same women who, a month after her death uh, last year, gathered in St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, Yes, they came to pay their respects, and they they uh, tried to put together a conference on what is to be done. Right, what's next, boys and girls? Yes. Uh, WBAI radio host Fran Luck called for her studio on 10th Street to be named the Shulamuth Firestone Memorial Apartment and rented in perpetuity to an older and meaningful feminist. Anyway, the article goes on to detail a number of people who were at the memorial service. And I don't know why, but uh, I, I don't think I've ever felt as old as I did reading this um, article. It's in the New Yorker of April 15th, American Chronicles, Death of a Revolutionary Shulamuth Firestone. Now, her book was called The Dialectic of Sex. And I remember uh, my first impression was, well, uh, I didn't think that doing away with motherhood was an answer, but 
she was, let's see, she was a contemporary exactly with Kate Millett, who's now 78, exactly my age. Uh, I remember when she was here in Berkeley once, she was admitted to the uh, psychiatric ward at Herrick. I was working for a doctor across the street, and I, I was very upset that they had put her in the psychiatric ward and... Uh, one of the nurses there said, well, you know, uh, she's just been overeducated. You know, she she's just thinks too much. Uh, <laughs> at the memorials service, Kate Millett uh, read from a chapter in Shulamuth's last book, Airless Spaces. It was a chapter entitled Emotional Paralysis. It describes the way... Uh, Shulamuth Firestone felt when she had a psychotic break. Uh, something terrible happened to this woman. Uh, it's not her despair alone. I think, let's see, here's what Millet says. He says, I think that we should all remember Shuli. That's the, what they call Shulamuth Firestone. We should all remember her because we are in the same place now, oh my God, I hope it isn't true. Hard to say at which moment the mourners were there to mark the passing of Firestone or that of a whole generation of feminists who had been unable to thrive in this world they had done so much to create. Still not sure I believe in all that. Remember, Kate Billett's book was Sexual Politics and the book that Firestone is most famous for was called The Dialectic of Sex. Uh, it's worth giving them a look, giving a glance over. Uh, Firestone is the one who came up with, uh, you know, the idea of consciousness raising and all that sisterhood is powerful business. Uh, Actually, I never cared much for Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique, in 1963, but that is always credited with, uh, what do you call that, uh, kind of a zen slap for women everywhere. It seems to me I had always known uh, that the position of women was precarious. I read The, uh, the, the uh, Second Sex by... Simone de Beauvoir, that seemed to me to cover the ground. Uh, let's see. The personal is political, the myth of the vaginal orgasm, all that stuff is in the dialectic of sex. 200 pages, she reinterprets Marx, Engels, Freud. She makes a case that a sexual class system runs deeper than any other social or economic divide. You remember Margaret Atwood's book, The Handmaid's Tale, in which the women are categorized by color? <laughs> you know, fertile women wore red, the uh, wives wore blue, the, uh, what is it, the, the women who, the, the teachers, the professors, the so-called professional women wore brown, and the laborers, the household workers, people like, women like that wore a kind of... Uh, kind of industrial green. Anyway, Firestone argued, like Virginia Woolf, that the traditional family structure 
is at the core of women's oppression. You remember Virginia Woolf told us that the whole thing got started in the home. There's a lot of stuff in this article about Shulamuth Firestone's father. He seems to be uh, especially mean. Uh, real fights, they finally fell out and didn't speak to each other. He belittled her. He said that her book was a joke, that kind of thing. Anyway, the biological family, that was the trouble, she said. Uh, you know, she wanted people to be, well, children to be raised in communes. Actually, her parents did wind up in Israel. That's interesting. Uh, she says the tapeworm of exploitation will never be annihilated. Pregnancy, she said, is barbaric. Childbirth is like essing a pumpkin. Childhood is a supervised nightmare. Now, she understood that these statements were unlikely to be welcomed, especially by other women. On the first page of the book, she writes, This is painful because no matter how many levels of consciousness one reaches, the problem always goes deeper. She wrote, Feminists have to question not just all of Western culture, but the organization of culture itself, and further, even the very organization of nature. So many women give up in despair. If that's how deep it goes, they don't want to know. <laughs> Last night I found a scrap of Charlotte Bronte, who said it is better not to think about some of these things, you know, the things that women are unable to do anything about. She said some, Charlotte Bronte said some things were within our grasp, but not all, of course. Uh, going to the roots of inequality, Sholemuth Firestone believed, was what set radical feminism apart from the mainstream movement. You know, I, I remember the shock I got when I realized that it was not the romance of feminism that intrigued women. That's what I thought. Uh, I thought it would free us all to be creative human beings, whether mothers or, or uh, artists or poets or anything that was, what do you call that, uh, not business. And I realized I saw all these young women with their briefcases and their little sneakers running off to be uh, businessmen. They were all over San Francisco, and I, I got it then. A little light went on in my head. It's all about the money. I remember my mother saying that economics was at the, the bottom of all these difficulties. Uh, Sholemuth Firestone says, not just the elimination of male privilege but of sex distinction itself. Genital difference between human beings would no longer matter culturally. Sorry, Shulamuth. No wonder, no wonder she was rejected by so many even of her sisters. Uh, in the book's late chapters, she has a sketchy, futuristic notion that she intended only to stimulate thinking in fresh areas rather than to dictate the action. Of course, I kind of figured that. Uh, at bottom, she was doing what we call, um, what do you call that? She was going too far. 
in order to help the the people in the middle. She envisioned a world in which women might be liberated by artificial reproduction outside the womb, a world in which collectives took the place of families, in which children were granted the right of immediate transfer from abusive adults. Well, of course, she was abused by her father and all that good stuff, so uh, uh, it's a classic predicament. Uh, what it did, of course, was stimul- stimulate outrage. And, of course, uh, children's rights were something I think Simone de Beauvoir said, well, good, uh, someone has finally put children's rights in the same basket with women's rights. Uh, anyway, I remember reading uh, a little book called, uh, a little pamphlet, actually, uh, called Scum. It was uh, written by, let's see, Valerie Solanus. A, a true psychotic. She's the one who shot Andy Warhol, you remember. It was scum, yes, Society for Cutting Up Men, right? That was Her idea was to destroy the concept of work and traditional marriage, alter social relations completely. Uh, you know, uh, I think that, which is it, somebody has to do it. <laughs> Dialectic was, you know... Um, It was the kind of book that I picked up and put down a dozen times, and I thought, what is she doing? Why doesn't she offer something that's possible? Uh, The book was ridiculed on the talk shows. At the same time, it climbed up the bestseller list. It was called The Little Red Book for Women. On the other hand, uh, along with Kate Millett's book, Sexual Politics, it took the top of my head off. Uh, let's see. It wasn't just taking on obvious male chauvinists. She was doing something very dangerous. She wanted, she wanted to change our culture. Now, Shulamuth Firestone is the one who launched the first major radical feminist groups in our country. She's described in this article as a shooting star. I think of Sojourner Truth when she was dying. She said, I'm going home like a shooting star. So interesting. I wanted to read you something uh, about Sojourner Truth because she's the one who understood, you know, that the abolitionist movement would not liberate women. She said to Frederick Douglass, she said, uh, don't you understand uh, half the Negro race, she called them Negroes, it's uh, late 19th century, is made up of women. And uh, <laughs> that's that's so interesting. Frederick Douglass had said, this hour belongs to the Negro. Anyway, after abolition was uh, taken care of, the women went back, back, back home. And it was, what, almost 40, 50 years, 50 years before we had second wave. Of feminism, and the men were still, still saying the same sort of things. Stokely Carmichael's quip was that the only position for women is prone. Stokely Carmichael ran the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Uh, anyway, 
the women were laughed at, and I think the worst thing I remember, at least for me personally, was to be told that women had no sense of humor. <laughs> well, I don't have time for all my jokes about the women's movement. I think they're very revealing. You know the old story about first they ignore you, then they belittle you, then finally they tell you they thought of the whole idea first. Anyway, check out this article. It made me feel both nostalgic and very, very sad. It's called uh, Death of a Revolutionary. It's in the New Yorker for April 15th. It's all about the woman who wrote The Dialectic of Sex and a half a dozen other women. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air again next week at the same time. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. At this particular moment, we're beyond KPFA's eighth birthday on the air. Broadcasting actually started at three o'clock in the afternoon on April 15, 1949. When I get older, losing my head, many years from now, will you still be sending me a valentine? Hey, guess what? KPFA is 64 years old. It's our birthday. 64 years of listener-sponsored community radio. And if you like our presents, how about a present? An online gift would be great. Go to kpfa.org and pledge. Celebrate KPFA and Pacifica. We're 64. Happy birthday, KPFA! Will you still feed me? Will you still feed me when I'm...